0: I also want to bring to you Yukanuba Sporting Dog, the Premium Performance 3020 Blend. For the last 50 years, Yukanuba has created premium nutrition that unlocks the power and potential within. From the unstoppable performance of the sporting dogs to the life saving abilities of working dogs to the incredible companionship of service animals and family pets. Check out Yukanuba Sporting Dog today and go pick up a bag of the 3020. Premium performance blend. And guys, last but not least, I want to thank my Phillies, Lion Country Supply and Garmin Fish and Hunt. Go check them out today for the spring training season. All right. So, just a couple of things, a couple of thoughts, a couple of announcements. You know, I got to open up the podcast with this guy. So, We are making serious, serious, serious strides and headway with the Minority Outdoor Alliance Incorporated. Um, So if y'all don't mind, I need y'all to do me one huge favor. um, My listeners and supporters and and everybody that has been, you know, here to, to support the podcast. I mean, for however long I've been doing this at this point now, guys, go over on your Instagram profile All right, go over and type in Minority Outdoor Alliance. All right. One word, Um, no underscores, no anything like that. And go ahead and start following the Minority Outdoor Alliance to get updates on what we're doing, Um, you know, as the weeks go by, I really want to you know, get the ball rolling well on this. And we've got a lot of support coming in from a, a number of different directions. So stay tuned and, and, and kind of keep that in your uh, periphery. And we'll move that to the front of the vision very, very, very soon. So also just, we are in one of the most transformative times in history, everything going on. Um, and the world I believe is just totally in a different space and and people want to change. People see the systemic racism and things like that that go on um, in our country and also in the outdoors. So because of this, guys, the outdoors will be a catalyst for reconnection to self and to community. We at the minority outdoor alliance believe that it is important now more than ever to make the outdoors for everyone so that we may present a unified effort to protect and conserve our lands and fulfill the call on all of our hearts to pass everything to the next generation um, and increase our value and its value the value of the land so guys just that's kind of where we are with the out uh, the the minority outdoor alliance um, like I said, go to Instagram and go ahead and, and hit the, the follow button there. We are going to come with a boatload of content and, you know, data stats, things like that. Um, you know, keep it fun. We've got some some things brewing for you. All right. Um, also, as we talk about, you know, keeping the land going and in conservation and things like that, I want y'all to go and support um, Two things, backcountry hunters and anglers, number one. But also, I would love if you guys were to go and check out what Land Tawney is doing right now. All right. Land is seeking to get the Great American Outdoors Act. HR, the the bill is HR 7092 um, to move through the House of Representatives. All right. And what that will do. All right. H.R. 7092. Um, What it says is to amend Title 54 United States Code to establish, fund and provide for the use of uh, the, the use of amounts in national parks and public land legacy restoration fund to address the maintenance backlog of the National Park Service, the US Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service and the Bureau of Indian Education to provide permanent, dedicated funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund and for other purposes. So guys, you know of of all times right now we definitely 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 need your support um land has been doing a a number of things to you know just raise awareness right he's been doing a number of things to to raise awareness but anyway you can contact and connect with your representatives um at the link in the backcountry hunters and anglers bio or by calling a capital switchboard at 202 202- Two two four three one two one, or by connecting with them on Instagram. Um, and I just want to make sure that we all stand as a united voice um, to get this stuff moved. And, and land is on the front lines, and and, and really making a difference. Um, you know, in that atmosphere, and to make sure that public lands are public, truly public. All right. Um, and there's a, there's a lot I can unpack there, but we ain't gonna go there. So anyway, that's um. You know, that's been something that's been on my mind and I've been trying to support there as well. Um, guys, you know, for my field trialers, man, I I know y'all hear this and y'all get this, but like, let's let's pray that we can we can get American Field back up in print and, and things like that. I know the digital version is cool, but it's something about that print version, man. So I know there's a lot going on with COVID-19, guys. My last thing is with COVID-19, please stay safe, wear a mask do the smart thing even if it ain't for you do it for the elderly people do it for the people that are um you know immunocompromised so with that being said guys here's another episode of the gun dog notebook with dr julia brock i really 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 think y'all are going to enjoy this episode so stay tuned to this episode of the gun dog notebook podcast and we'll see y'all very very soon episode of the gun dog notebook podcast we are doing something that i think is very 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 special to the south we got dr julia brock on um a historian professor um you you know dr brock what all do what all don't you do let's start there i mean you got a lot of different things going on
1: Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me, Daryl. This is, as I've said, an honor to be on. Um, Yeah, you said it. I'm based at the University of Alabama. I'm two years in, and I am in the history department. So I'm a faculty member, assistant professor of history, but my role is a little bit different in the department. So I'm a historian, I research, I write, I teach classes, but I'm also um, a public historian, which means that I spend a lot of my time Working with communities and groups of all kinds um, in projects that preserve and share the past. So I work with a lot of oral history. I work with exhibits. I work in consultation with the National Park Service. So yeah, just like um, you, I have some. <laughs> I have. I have some iron in the fire, um, and I feel really fortunate <laughs> in that way.
0: Well, is I, I'm the type of person that likes. I like to be busy. I will say that. Um <laughs> it is a little straight like this this these last couple of weeks been a little rough, but um yeah. I believe it's a blessing to be busy and it's also a blessing to have the role of a historian. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. we are responsible for everything from from what you read in grade school till till dissertations like what what you sent me Um, and I want to kind of open up that can of worms as well but let's first of all I I really want to ask you for my own selfish uh, purposes because I'm looking into um, I told you this before I'm looking into chasing my PhD um, you know very I'm looking into chasing my PhD and like how tough is it to get through the the, the dissertation?
1: That's a great question. Um <laughs> it you know, hopefully by that time you have chosen a topic that you are very passionate about. And indeed if you didn't, it would be a nightmare to write a dissertation. But it also gives you the time and space to really think and be with the sources, the primary sources with which you know you're going to build your work, um, and it becomes this very personal endeavor that is, of course, aided by any number of people—from archivists to your committee to people who are reading your work to your loved ones to your community of listeners. Let's say here, so it can feel isolating, but I always took comfort in the fact that so many people were walking with me through it. Mm-hmm. I really loved it. Okay. So it's not difficult if you choose the right topic that you want to explore and write about
0: and you want to bring to a wider audience gotcha gotcha okay well i um i i hope that i'm going to be doing the same thing now in in terms of topic so the title you sent me your dissertation and, and i was able to go through it and honestly i had a lot more questions than what we have time for today, but I, I want to talk about the subject, right? Land labor um, mm-hmm. and leisure, northern tourism in the Red Hills region. Um, and the time period was from 1890 to 1950. So like what what about that time period resonated with you? I mean, you had a lot of years and a lot happened, especially down there <laughs> in that area. So why, why that time period? That's a great question. And it's a great question for historians. Sometimes we choose
1: what seemed to be these arbitrary bookends to the stories we want to tell, mm-hmm. and we have to justify that. You know, why start in eighteen ninety? Why not eighteen seventy-seven with the end of Reconstruction? Right. You know that the what was so um, interesting to me about this time period, and related to the thing I was writing about, which was the formation of this hunting colony in the Red Hills region in South Georgia and North Florida, mm-hmm. was that those dates really kind of encompassed the. The influential years of these mostly northern or midwestern men and their families who were buying you know old uh oftentimes antebellum properties in thomas county and other counties in the red hills oftentimes building their own um and these became these quail hunting plantations and so that time period was the kind of significant time period for those men i mean those plantations, the footprint of those plantations, of course, as many people know, are still there. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily owned by northern families. They, they could be uh, mm-hmm. by the descendants of those northern families. So I was interested in, in capturing that. But, you know, this is also a fascinating period of history in the U.S. South, and I consider myself to be a Southern historian. Mm -hmm. I'm from the South, um, and it may seem predetermined that I write about the South, but I'm fascinated by, you know, this period that's really after the end of Reconstruction. Um, It's sometimes called the first New South period. So that period that's defined by, um, you know, post-Reconstruction, the U.S. military presence has left the South. Southern politics have been taken over by white Southern Democrats, uh, which, of course, led to almost a century of the solid South or the one-party South. Mm-hmm. And it's frankly a difficult period because it's, one, defined by racial violence. There's an epidemic of lynchings, the crystallization of Jim Crow or segregation laws, but it's also a period of black institution building, yep. so in colleges and schools, in churches and businesses. And so it's this. It, like many periods in history, right? We could say this, but it's an incredibly complex period. And frankly, as we see right in this moment, it's a period that the South is still coming to terms with. Right. Um, so it, it gave me a lot. I mean, it gave me a lot in terms of the, the, the particular story I wanted to tell about the Red Hills, but also it gave me a chance to really dive into this period of South, the South, which is so complex.
0: Right, right. Now, I all right. So this this is a very specific thing, and knowing you know you you write and you're a historian. I, I obviously you're very particular with the words that you use. So you called it a a hunting colony, and and what mm-hmm. that does, it specifies it to me. Right. It kind of shrinks it. You know it it it, it makes the red hills. Um, like I, I think there's a there's a, per, uh, a a prevailing narrative of the red hills is like all of this just southern wealth right and it's just, just large expanses of land and things like that but when you reference it as a as a colony right it really brings it in it it it, mm-hmm. it kind of brings in the land and brings in the narrative and makes it a little bit more personal why why would you define it as a colony back then
1: that's a good question. In some in some part, I received that phrase from the oral histories I did with people from the area. I worked there when I was a graduate student at Florida State University, interviewing Thomas Dillians in particular mm-hmm. um, about the the period the, the, about this these hunt, hunting uh, about this hunting colony in these hunters, and so that that was a phrase people I heard people use, but I think it's apt. And I think you're absolutely right that it references really the, the building of large holdings of land that were put to use for uh, leisure purposes, certainly for hunting purposes, but also for uh, sometimes for, for profitability. Um, it, it, these, you know, these older hunting hunters, they still um, had tenant farmers on their land. So we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. They had, sometimes were timbered uh, their land. Um so it, 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 in the sense that they were forming an inclusive—or uh, or rather, I should say, an exclusive kind of—an hunt, elite hunting colony, um, it does have to do with kind of the, the land and the ways that these contiguous kind of parcels of land were um, subsumed for the purposes of, of this kind of um, sporting leisure right. uh, that was so popular at the time, or it was growing in popularity in the late 19th century. right. Okay. Okay. That
0: was, that was just something unique. And I, and I saw it a number of times and I was like, all right, if I, if I see it more than two times, like this is this, there's a reason, you know, for that. And and I think it's pretty cool that, you know, folks from down that way, Thomasville and, and, and Metcalf, I don't think that gets talked about a a lot, you know, unless again, you're, you're down in that area, but Metcalf have had a lot, the city of Metcalf had a lot to do with, the, you know, the prominence of wealth down there. And a a number of times you, you hear those, those colonies. Um, So, you know, going, you know, in, in that time period, right. We, we, I think everybody knows now the influence of Northerners to the South. I mean, there's a whole war about it. (laughs) There's a whole war, but, um, and it's funny nowadays there are, um, and I don't know if you saw this down there. N- nowadays, there's actually a lot of folks from Silicon Valley that have come down to South Georgia to buy up a lot of that land down there. Um, th- there's a lot of new wealth, right? So it's it's like in 2020, there's this this Western kind of tourism. If we're going to talk about tourism, there's like this there, now. There's these you know younger, very 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 wealthy. You know, tech guys that are coming down here and they're doing the same thing, kind of, sort of. But then when we look back, there's always been this influence from somewhere else. So I want to get into the northern aspects of tourism. And I think, again, being specific about the words, tourism is also a very, very, very good thing. I mean, you know, for historical context, like Hobart Ames of the Ames Plantation, which is where the national, um, uh, field trial is run. He was a northerner. Um, hmm. The guy that I was telling about, Robert Whaley, um, that you know where I get my my dog's bloodlines, where he comes from. Robert Whaley was from New York. He came down here and and had a place in Alabama and competed oh. and stuff like that in South Georgia, and then went back up to New York. <laughs> so there's this this idea that or, or kind of a fascination with northerners coming down here. And I want to ask you, you know, what did you find about that influence, and why was it so critical, you know, to the economy down here?
1: Yeah, I mean, and there, are, you know, the way the way that we can use the word tourism, it it, 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 it sort of happened in phases. In Thomasville and the Red Hills, uh, but Thomasville specifically—I mean, Thomasville, as many people may know—became really a tourist resort. Um, and, and the heyday of that was, you know, roughly 1870s to 1890s, when people were coming down uh, from the north seeking out what they thought would be healthier climates for uh, respiratory diseases, things really? like uh, yeah, yeah, tuberculosis. And there was this, and people in People from Thomasville were pushing this narrative that the pine resin, which is so strong there, would actually help people breathe. Um, (laughs) And and, and so um, well, people who were kind of the patrician class in Thomasville at the time began to build these really beautiful hotels, the Piney Worth Hotel, the Mitchell House Hotel. Mm -hmm. There were many boarding houses and other hotels that were catering to – people who were from the North, um, coming down as tourists. And yeah, I would, I think that was absolutely a boon to the economy, especially when you think that, you know, after the civil war, Southerners, black or white, um, had no capital, right? They were rebuilding society, rebuilding an economy, and they were looking for new kinds of industries. Um, Of course, the South remains an agricultural region for well into the 20th century, but in the late 19th century, people were searching for industries in which to help the economy, diversify the economy. These people often touted the phrase the New South. You know, we're looking for new kinds of economies to industry, and tourism was one of those economies that was touted. Um, And, you know, this wasn't just in Thomasville. Asheville, North Carolina became, as we know, still a tourist destination, but became a tourist destination for northerners and other places coming down uh, to seek warmer and and what they thought were healthier climates. Of course, Florida is a great example of that. Right. So, um, another thing to mention is that you know the, the nation was uh, really reeling from a series of, of economic. Depressions between the 1870s and the 1890s. So, any way that a small town, especially the business class of a small town, could support itself was going to be and allow itself to thrive was really important. So, tourism becomes that answer for Thomasville uh, in a really interesting way. And, you know, those tourists, those folks coming down, lead to the Red Hills region being identified as a great place to quail hunt and Mm -hmm. bird hunt. And so it leads directly into another kind of more seasonal tourism, if you will. And, and really, we can't, you know, become something other than tourism because these families, like the Chapins, like the Hannah's, right? They come down uh, and and sort of semi permanently right. and and live in the region in, in the hunting season and the bird hunting season in the, in the winter and spring. Right.
0: That's that's interesting, and <laughs> you know. me, I guess when you sent me that um, and and we'll get into Charlie Young's transcript and stuff, but seeing the Chapin name and the Hannah name um, and and the whole story of like Melrose Plantation, right? Where Melrose, like I, (laughs) for the longest time, and I I never asked my buddy, Terry. So um, my buddy, Terry Chastain um, Jr. and his father, were the dogmen at that plantation? Terry is at Nilo now in Albany, but you know he got his start at at, at at Melrose, and so did his dad. And so I always thought that it was just you know some landowner that whose last name was Melrose, right? I never went to actually look into it. Um, and so listening to the story of of Charlie Young talking about how Mel was a guy who we were talking about like he was he was sick, you know, and, and and there was this whole beautiful, fantastic story about him, you know, rising up out of the bed and, and and hearing or reading through that was very, very interesting how they tied that narrative together. Correct me if I'm if I'm off track, but I am I'm, I'm trying to remember that story specifically. Um and then um meeting Mr. Chapin, you know, he was at our um at, at the the black Handler's trials and oddly enough, he was listening to one of my, my lectures. <laughs> so um, you know meeting him and I think he is the historian for the folks at Melrose too like the family historian. I think Mr. Chapin is. I have to triple check, but I'm almost positive he's their their family historian.
1: That's great, and I, I, I'm sure he will be so interested to
0: see the narrative of Charlie Young mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and read it. I'll have to. Um, it's it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely interesting. Well, since we're on it, I mean, why not? You know, might as well not foreshadow it. Um, give me your initial thoughts about the transcript when you got it, like when you finished reading it. What were your just dead-on thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, so Charlie Young... Um, African-American dog trainer, born in the 1880s, died in the late 1960s. And in his older years, he is commissioned, I think, I'm almost positive that he was commissioned probably by Pansy Poe, who at that time was the owner of Pebble Hill, Mm -hmm. to write his reminiscences, what he calls his reminiscences, of Thomasville and and the surrounding area. Um, And he produced this 40-page uh, a handwritten document that, that talks about his life and work, and it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, when I stumbled on that, you know, as a historian, you spend a lot of time in the archive going through records and records that aren't always useful to your project, right, but you have to sift through them, Right. and you're always looking for that you know that gem, that spark, that right. source that you know is going to transform your project. Mm-hmm. Well, this transcript was that for me. Well, look,
0: how did was, you get it? Because yeah. that story was cool too.
1: So, big shout out to the Thomasville History Center, mm-hmm. um, which was the Thomas Thomas uh, Thomas County Historical Society. When I was down doing research in the late aughts, so two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten they basically, um, you know, they have so many collections important to the story, and I would encourage anyone interested in the history of hunting to go look through some of these collections, including the Hopkins collection and others. Well, Ephraim Rotter, who is still the curator there, who's a wonderful, wonderful person, um, he was allowing me to kind of look through some vertical files, just on the chance that I might find something useful. They have so many amazing records. And I was looking through one of those vertical files, and I I literally could not move the files within the drawer because there was something that was jammed up at the back of the file drawer. So I basically had to take out all of the hanging files. Mm -hmm. And what was under all those files was this remarkable transcript of Charlie Young's reminiscences. Um, And Ephraim had not seen it, as, as I recall. You know, the title of it, is reminiscences of Charlie Young for Bill Rogers. Um, mm-hmm. Bill Rogers was at the time, uh, uh, well, when I was writing, he was a historian. He was a, a professor emeritus at, at, at Florida State University. But at the time Charlie Young wrote his reminiscences in the 1960s, Bill Rogers was a young historian at. Florida State, who had been commissioned by Pansy Poe to write a history or several histories of Thomas County. Mm-hmm. So clearly, Charlie Young was writing to Bill Rogers, um, and and Rogers was still alive when I was writing. So I, I called him and I said, you know, Dr. Rogers, do you remember the source? Did you ever meet Charlie Young? And he did not remember it, nor does it show up in his history. So somehow he did not get a copy, unfortunately, of <sighs> Young's story. And Young. As I've told you before, wanted his story to
0: be told, so I'm mm-hmm. glad we're talking about it now. <laughs> well, and I, I think <laughs> and we all know what's going on right now. There is, I am, and you notice as a southerner, there is a piece of spirituality, right, and almost superstition that kind of hangs around. And if you grow up here, you know, there you, you grow up hearing these stories about spirits, right? And I think. Mm-hmm the spirit of charlie young he did all the energy to write that narrative and and had you not come across it it had just been sitting there still for god knows how long you know and i i it i don't think it's a coincidence that you you found it the way that you did especially cuz it was forgotten about you know it's just it's just more or less lost so and, and I and I think it's a it's a special thing, because when you, when I was reading through that transcript, that reminded me of the same kinds of dog training books that were written by like Jack Harper and and Ur Shelley, all of these older dog men from way white dog men from way back then. But they had the opportunity to write their stories, write how they work dogs. Yeah, but it was really more so their stories and how they got around to being who they were, where char well Charlie Young's was just as compelling, but it had not been published anywhere, you know. And I, I just That's right. I, I I think that there is a lack of that kind of narrative, you know. Absolutely. And that and I, I would I would argue that that might be the first piece of written history. You know, for, you know, African-Americans down here as far as like bird dog folks, because, you know, the guys that I was telling you about that I that I I'm a part of the club and stuff like that. They don't write their stuff. It's all oral. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's just a special it's a very special piece, you know, that 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 I have that.
1: Absolutely. And just from the sense of the historical record, you know, people at that time. This also has to do with class too, right? Education mm-hmm. levels. Like Southerners, um, you know, public school was, was a new thing in the South and even with that, public schools were dedicated to whites. Right. So Southerners were undereducated at the time, unless you were upper middle class and wealthy, right? That the categories are a little bit, you know, we- they're not the same as today in the sense that uh, historical categories change over time. Right. But people of a certain class in the South, and especially marginalized people, did not write their histories. Right. You know, they re- as a whole, they did not. Um, so to find a perspective from a man who, you know, becomes a really successful man but mm-hmm. started out in very humble beginnings, you know, I think that's very remarkable. Um, so I agree.
0: I'm, I think so. So let me, when you read through it, there are I, I read it a couple of different ways um, and you, you kind of alluded to it. You're like, OK, maybe he might have been holding back. You know, there was a lot of maybes in there. Right. And considering he was writing this to a, 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 a very, very well-educated white man. So. Mm-hmm. Do you think at any point in time he was kind of sugarcoating the narrative or lightening the mood within the transcript?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you you have to consider his audience. You're absolutely right. So he's he's been commissioned possibly by a former employer you know, Pansy Poe to write for this white historian. And so he may have felt, he may have just understood his audience well that he was going to give at least rhetorical overtures to this idea that, you know, race relations were peaceful. But as you know, as you read it, at the same time he undercuts that narrative Mm -hmm. by being very frank about certain instances of injustice that Mm -hmm. he that he faced. Um, and he sort of talks about them in a nonchalant manner, but it's enough to give pause to these assertions that whites and blacks always got along in Thomasville. And I'm not saying that there weren't civil relationships, and there weren't, you know, um, complicated relationships between whites and blacks. But I do think in general, he is um, kind of code switching a little bit, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, Absolutely. Um, in this piece. Um, yeah. So it's a complicated piece, you know, and he's also writing from the perspective of an older man who is in the midst of a profound social transformation, i.e. the civil rights movement. And he's writing, you know, he, he, so I think there's a lot of context we have to consider when we think about what he says and why he says it in that particular piece. Right.
0: Um, And just to kind of elaborate on some of the complexities within the I'll say race relations. Right. I don't want to my examples right now that I want to give are not necessarily examples of injustice so much as the the class system and race relations that I kind of want to talk about that he talked talked about in the book. Well, I mean, in in, in the transcript. Well, two examples. The first one was um well, I, was it the 4th of July where they had like the big festival and yeah. one of the one of the, the things where they would find the blackest guy. Right. The, the, the like skin color, the darkest African-American, you know, there as a competition, like who was the blackest. Right. And mm-hmm. that kind of narrative still on a colorism standpoint still perpetuates exactly. black culture deeply, like real deep mm-hmm. and and he would win a suit. so it's it, you know like a like a really nice suit from a retail store. And it's 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 like a it's a weird thing to read that because it's like, okay, you are rewarding this guy for something that you deem as negative but you're putting it on a pedestal for a moment like it's it's there's so many different weird little connections in that you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost to me, it read like an act of mockery. Yeah. You know that you take something that is that by this society is deemed as dishonored, right? To have the, the blackest skin and then put it in a brand new suit. Right. There's an element. There's like a punchline element that's really deeply disturbing to right. me. Well, frankly, I think disturbing. But also, I don't know if you noticed who the winner of the suit was, but a man named August Young. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, he doesn't specify that that was a family member, but remember, but the young family was fairly big. Right. And so there's every chance that that person was a family member. And mm-hmm. so to and he also, I think in that scenario, he called out the judge who presided over that quote-unquote contest, and that was Roscoe Luke, who was – who becomes a kind of a notorious, um, you know, uh, person – Personage in Thomasville history for a variety of different reasons. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting that he names the person doing the dishonoring. You know this Roscoe Luke. So it's it's a multi layered story. I totally agree, and that's the fun thing about being a historian. (laughs) When you get in those records, you can just dissect all the layers and find so much meaning in human you know human behavior.
0: Right. I I, you know that just it it ate at me because I was like wait a minute and blacks were like, I mean, I guess you had to be grateful for it because it's at the time. And yeah, I mean, I got a new suit, but like, it it, like that, (laughs) I kind of had to like cock my head. You know how dogs do that weird, like head cock thing. That's like kind of confused. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) And then the other, um, the other piece in, in regards to actually uh, like quail hunting, right? Like, there's also the narrative down here that quail hunting is always done on a plantation, right? And it's always from horseback or these big private lands, right? And, and quail hunting was not that until this day. It's still not that all the time. Like being able to get out there on horseback on a plantation is a very, very privileged thing. That's not what most people do. And down there I saw you know, young telling that story about how they would, they were all foot hunting, whether it was white or black and they, they dealt with horses, but it was more so horse management for the, the northerners that were coming down, but they, they would be out like blacks could go out quail hunting which also raises a lot of questions for me and answers some of my own because I have a um, I'm a detour for a little bit but I have a 101 year old um, 410 shotgun that my wow. step my grandfather's stepfather owned and it's around this mm-hmm. time period that we're talking about right so mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. evidence that blacks could own guns very cheap cheap guns, but they could own those. But they were quail hunting. And anytime that they could go or anytime that they came across um, you know, anyone that was white, they would actually have to stop everything that they were doing. They couldn't shoot. They could they have to basically stop their hunt. And, and, and the, the, again, the other kind of a kind of reward system was if, if they helped the whites out, help them find birds, they would exchange, you know, there was an exchange of goods at that point in time, but regardless, you still had to stop what you're doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a, that, that, that again is that weird, like, thank you, but no, thank you, but thank you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's the complicated nature in which blacks and whites interacted in the context of Jim Crow, you know, the Jim Crow South, which is this period of time where segregation becomes legalized. And so you have de jure segregation, which is, you know, segregation by law. So. African-Americans couldn't ride on, you know, white uh, train cars, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these, these some, uh, series of laws that were passed in, in all southern states and some elsewhere, but then you had de facto Jim Crow Jim Crow which was customary. So it was expected, for example, that a black man would step off the street if a white woman was walking by him on the sidewalk. And it was expected, in this case, in the field even, that if a black hunter approached or, or, you know, ran into a white hunter, that the black hunter would assume a subservient role. So it was in keeping with these racial mores, these racist mores, um, even though it wasn't, that wasn't on the books in terms of law, right? There were these customs that were, broad and far reaching in Southern culture as a part of, uh, this period. And so it's pretty stunning to think that, you know, black mobility was regulated in this way. Um, and, uh, and Charlie Young is, that's an exciting revelation in terms of how he saw that interaction. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's again, one of the remarkable things about this, about this.
0: Right. Um, and and the last thing that I kind of wanna well the last like handful of you know little stuff that about Charlie Young that really stood out to me was first um, it, it I think he might have been one of the first. And I don't I don't have any kind of like way to prove this because so much of African-American history was not documented, nor was it written by whites. So I've got these two narratives in my hand. All right. So one was Charlie Young's and him being able to go from here, from from Georgia, from the south and travel up, you know, to Canada and and through Texas to, to King Ranch and train dogs with these prominent trainers. And we've mm-hmm. got photo documentation of it. You sent me the photo of it, but mm-hmm. but then I've got this Shelley book here, um, who was prominent, you know, at the time, and I think it would have been around that time. And there's this photo with no name. There, there. He doesn't name who the boy is, but it's another young black guy, man, that's mm-hmm. helping him plant birds for his dog training. And so for me I guess it it's it's really it's great to have that narrative and and at least still have a photo of all of this stuff because that the I think right now I'm kind of in the early stages of piecing it together you know I might not ever find the yep. names of the people in these photos but at least I can say hey this was what was going on and to and and again being able to travel to Canada for a job like that, considering the discrimination, was still a step above working on a field. But if you want to get to the field, guys, go check out On X Hunt. Get the OnX Hunt app, um, download it to your phones, use my promo code GDN20. You can check out as much of the field as you possibly want to. And when we're talking about Minority Outdoor Alliance, guys, well, that's how we're going to get more folks in the outdoors, knowing where to go, knowing the land that you can use, the public spaces that we all own, and and, and the public spaces that we all love. So go check out Onyx Hunt um, and at, at your nearest app store, and, and go download and make sure that you put in my promo code. Again, it is GDN20. You can use it at checkout for 20% off your Onyx subscription. And since we're talking about traveling up and down the country, you can't do that without good food and good food. I mean, you can do a sporting dog. You um, can do a premium performance 3020 blend. And there's a whole bunch of other different formulas and things like that. But make sure that you guys check out the you can do sporting dog premium performance uh, dog food. I use it. My dogs love it. And, and, and it keeps them happy and content on the road. All right, guys. So here we go. Back to the episode.
1: And I think he's, you know, he, he, he seems to, you know, suggest that even in the narrative that, you know, he came from a, his, his parents were sharecroppers, um, but his, but his mother, I mean, his family become, you know, business people in Thomasville. He uses this, these jobs and he has uncles who work for other plantations, um, and he uses – absolutely. So he not only is he getting personal fulfillment from this job because, as you know, he loves dogs and mm-hmm. he he loves hunting. Um, and so he gets to go with these northern hunters all around the country, as you just said. And he has these great – like when he describes them, he uses this amazing kind of visual language he sees. You know, stacks of buffalo bones mm-hmm. um, on the South Dakota Prairie you know where where they've been overkill right mm-hmm. so but he also gains it materially I mean he you know he um, moves into a kind of a, a, a we might even say a different social class it's uh, yeah. it's not that there were limits to the job but he becomes more of a, a sort of a middle-class man although by the 1960s, he, as he was aging and his health was was suffering, um, you know, he was supported by family members, but he was able to buy his own home. His, um, you know, children were successful. His grandchildren were really successful and moved all over the country and did any number of things. So, yeah, I mean, he, he, it is kind of a, um, a stepping stone for him. And it's also a job that gives him a lot of personal. Right.
0: right. That's, I just, I thought that was really, really cool. Um, And I I, what I don't want to do and what I want to be careful of, it's very easy to paint blacks here as we it all just sucked. Right. It all was just terrible. And and, in 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 more ways than a little bit, it was bad. Like no one wants to live through that. But I also like to bring up the ways that that black folks were um making advancements. And I think in the case of, of of Charlie Young, he was one of the 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 diamonds in a rough, you know, that was able to take those experiences and make the best of it. So I just want to be careful about perpetuating a negative narrative all the time because so much of that is already heard. Oh yeah. No, and I mean history is you know,
1: when you study the past you have to recognize the complexities of the past mm-hmm. and that human beings, uh, they fought, they struggled, they lived, they were complicated and full human beings. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's important for us as historians to, to make sure that we are talking about humanity and its fullness while also recognizing uh, the, this overlay of oppression. You know, right. that's just that is what it is. We can't deny that. But we have to also recognize the way people live their lives found joy, found love, had families, uh, you know, failed as humans, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right that, that, that it's more complex. Sometimes history gets told as, you know, black and white stories when, in fact, uh, the, the beauty of history is it is so complicated and complex, and it allows us to, to pull apart uh, kind of the way humans live, mm-hmm. Um so
0: yeah, I totally agree. I, I understand what you mean. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So now we're gonna we we're gonna jump from Charlie Young. Um, I want to get a little bit back into your dissertation, and we're gonna go to Pebble Hill. All right, because I I want to okay. I want to take this kind of scenic route right through the narrative. But as far as your dissertation, okay, you mentioned that it also it functions as in two ways as a case study. Um, of the Red Hills and then a public history project. Break, break that down for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, as an academic study, it, it really is kind of a community study in the sense that I'm looking at a place that founded, you know, the Red Hills region has a particular kind of geographic uh, limit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was specifically interested in the community informed closest to Thomasville and in Thomas County. So in that way, academically, um, it, it's a community study of, of a kind. But I, as a public historian, you know, my, my real interest is is talking to people, is getting history out there to, the, to a public audience. In this case, um, I employed public history methodology when I lived in Thomasville. I would go for months at a time. And I would conduct oral history, so I interviewed people who were associated with the plantations and were hunting and, and otherwise just people in town. I would go to church services with people. I would talk to people. I would, um, you know, really kind of interact with people and get their side and how what the history meant to them. Um, and so I think that's an important part of the way I work. Is I don't, you know, see myself as someone who goes and sits in a dusty archive. I want to talk to people right. and I want to get their sense of how what the history means Them. Um, I think, though, I will say in relation to what you want to do with your work, I think there's much more public history that could be done with this in the way of exhibition and additional lectures. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have ideas about writing that go beyond just like an academic book that's only read by, you know, 15 historians or whatever. You want to write for, and I've heard you say, you want to write for a public audience or a different audience. And Mm -hmm. I think these. This history parts of this history that you're particularly interested in really could be turned into vibrant public history projects. Um, still, you know, I think there's they've not been exhausted. I think, um, and I think, you know, I think about the the community of hunters who would be interested in knowing about the history of hunting right. or the history of bird dog training and bird dog breeding, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think. Um, there remains yet to be a lot done. Yeah.
0: Well, that's inspiring. <laughs> and thank <So>. you. <laughs>
1: There's your charge.
0: Right, there there is my charge. It. Okay. If not if not I didn't get the fire me, the- but I, I
1: support <laughs> Yeah, I support all that you said.
0: Well, I'm I'm here for it. Um, and I I when I tell you it's you have really, really, really done some miraculous things for leading me in the right direction. Um and you know real quick just in some did you get any pushback from like walking up to folks down there and, and they're like you're like hey i want to talk to you about you know the history of this area did you get any pushback what was that like
1: i know. know I, I mean not to my face okay <laughs> people were very welcoming i mean people from across the community were very welcoming okay so um I really didn't. And I, you know, I gave a public talk like you did. I think you gave a talk to the cultural arts center. Mm -hmm. At some point I went back down to the Thomasville history center and gave a talk. And I was so scared because I was going to be talking about very frank subject matter. I was Mm -hmm. not going to shy away from talking about the complicated, uh, you know, the, the, the shadows of the past And people showed up, and I mean, Charlie Young's ancestors showed uh, up, Charlie Young's family showed up, Uh, uh, people from, you know, the plantation showed up, it was a very diverse crowd, and I was so worried about, you know, the reaction to to my presentation, which was very honest, and I was working things out in conversation with them, and the one, the biggest concern that people had, and, and I laughed about this later, was that I spelled their names right. <laughs> 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 the people, you know, people actually, you know, the public and especially... The people who are connected to these histories in personal ways, they are not afraid of talking about things. I, I found in complicated ways of, of thinking through things in complicated ways. So I was really, you know, honored to, to talk with folks down there, and people opened up to me and, and amazing. And I think you probably found the same thing. People right. open up to you if you really sit down to listen and you're, you know, you're sincere and you've done your homework, people will we'll trust and talk to you, you know, and then. Um, uh, that that's
0: a really that's that was a really special part of my being down there right it's I'm I'm gonna tell you the time that I did it um I was sweating bullets <laughs> <laughs> I was sweating but I was like, okay well first of all I've got I've got these two dogs up here that and looking back on it they were fine I had a bunch of people it was like your dogs were fine um but they started shuffling. Like my lab started shuffling around and st- And I was like, okay, you got to go in the kennel. Like I had the kennel on stage. I was <laughs> like, you, you got to go, man. Like He wasn't doing anything wrong. I was just, he, he, when you're up in front of an audience and you're talking about challenging subject matter, every little thing you, I, I don't know. I got like a hyper, like a, like my senses went into overdrive or something like that. And I was just like, Why are you moving? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Like, you don't normally do this at home. (laughs) And so I was doing that. And then I'm talking to a predominantly white audience about similar subject matters, what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge, you know, And, and, and you don't want to offend anyone But then you still want to be honest to what's going on or what has gone on. You know, (laughs) so that, you know, that's it now. All right. So we 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 will this is going to segue me into into Pebble Hill, because I think Pebble Hill Plantation, anybody from Georgia, there is I think that was probably one of the and still is probably one of the quintessential um, historical landmarks for South Georgia. And I think it carries <laughs> the mythology of the old South, but you, you mentioned that mythology and, and, and romanticism of the old South in your writing. Um, and what did that look like for, for Northern, you know, whites that were coming down here? Like what, wh- because there was obviously a lot of very, very jaded mindsets. And, and, and you mentioned Nina Silber, <laughs> who um, right. said that nostalgia for the old South never actually existed, but fit to the adherence of the Southern lost cause. So I want you to talk about mm-hmm. what that mytholo- mythology looked like and then actually what was the lost cause?
1: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Normaners came down, um, they bought land and home sometimes from Southerners who needed Cash, right? So they bought they bought land for pretty cheap, Um, as the historical records say. They 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 built these land holdings. Um, You know that region had been a, a settled. Uh, relatively late in the 1830s by whites, it was Creek territory, of course, until your know, forced removal, and then uh, whites move in into the 1830s, and you you have these um, families come in, like um, uh, the the Jones family and others, and, and build. You know uh, what we think of when we think about the quintessential plantation home, right? In fact, you know, former director of the Georgia Historic Site Survey named. Thomasville, Thomas County is having some of the you know the most quintessential examples of kind of neo antebellum neoclassical architecture, and that's really in places like Greenwood, you know, Greenwood, which is which was you know burned by fire but is still standing. Right. Um, so these Northerners were coming down and they were buying kind of buying into at least using this kind of um, antebellum patrician heritage to enhance their own sense of uh, as as sort of elite. Um, sport hunters right mm-hmm. that they that there was a sort of grandeur that they um uh that that became theirs when they came down and, and occupied these spaces um and that's you know that's kind of clear through uh the correspondence with uh between local realtors like h.w hopkins who was a local judge who was selling land folks and the northerners themselves right so there was a charm about it um mm-hmm. uh, that they were definitely kind of buying into now many many did build their own homes um uh, you know, like the Masons, right? um and others cheappin right, that that were more modern in style or had different kind of aesthetic influences. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a kind of a mix. But there is—you're right. There is, and it even—I think—it not only draws sort from of Southern kind of patrician culture, but also English, kind of like the English manner. Mm-hmm. You know, you see, you see inflections of that uh, as well, especially with the kind of elite sporting events like fox hunts and things that would take place on these plantations, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, a kind of a pageantry that, that did have did have antecedents in the Old South. So that that was there, uh, but it was kind of given renewed vigor when there was this, you know, kind of new sporting culture um, that, that came down and. and was um, part of, of the Red Hills region in the late 19th century. Right. Um, a lost cause is something that, you know, historians term the lost cause, That they, they use the term when they talk about the lost cause, the myth or cult, uh, civil religion, right, Confederate tradition, even celebration to explain what was inherently a Southern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, but they refer to a movement in the post-war South begun by whites, that was steeped in the agrarian traditions of the Old South and that um, kind of complicated efforts to create uh, what some boosters wanted to see, which was a new South, right? A South that that was uh, uh, departing in some ways from the Old South. Um, And it hearkened to, uh, you know, uh, myths about the Old South in terms of racial hierarchies, right, that um, enslaved people were well cared for, that they were these... The term that was always used is sort of loyal retainers mm-hmm. to these families who, you know, showed this kind of noblesse oblige, right, right. Uh, to people who... These, who people whom they enslaved. Um, it, there's also a narrative that the South cause in the civil war was right, that they were the true defenders of the constitution, right? That they were, that they fought for state's rights and not for the, the expansion of slavery, which historians have, um, said rightly is wrong, right? When you look at the, the primary sources, they tell you something different, right? So this lost cause narrative was really perpetuated, especially by women. Mm-hmm. Um, Women who uh, formed organizations uh, like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, right, that put up memorials, for example, monuments to the lost cause. Um, and so the Lost Cause really inflected the way history was told in the South, especially history about the Civil War and about the Old South. Right. And as we know, those myths had a staying power. Those myths persisted well into uh, the 20th century, mm-hmm. and even, right? The residue is still in the 21st century. Right. Um, so it, it's an important thing to talk about as Southerners, right, that, that how, how this narrative has been passed down. Uh, absolutely. And so Northerners kind of came into this. Um, this kind of region that was adopting this, you know, whatever you want to call it, cult, uh, set of myths, civil religion, right. Uh, just as that was kind of solidifying amongst Southerners uh, in an interesting way. And so they certainly played a part in that complicated range.
0: Right. Right. I, I, I just thought that was, it's very important to bring up, you know, in, in, in all of the, the, the history of the South, because, um, Obviously we just see, we see it like, like the, the, the lost cause that we speak about. It's like hanging on, you know, is there, there's some folks yeah. that are just not letting it go, but you hear it and you're like, well, what exactly is this? And it's, it's a legitimate ideology, It
1: absolutely is an ideology. It was an ideology that was far spread. And I would recommend anyone who's listening, um, work by the historian Karen Cox at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's written um, on this extensively. She wrote a book on the UDC, uh, the United Dogs of the Confederacy, again, who were um, in some ways, the the gatekeepers of this lost cause tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's worth anyone who's interested to really look back. I mean, we, we see these examples all around us still in our history, the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. But it does have a deep and sort of troubled past. It, 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 I agree, as, as Southerners, I think it's up to us to, to learn about uh, this and why it had this kind of holding power. Right,
0: right. I, I I think so, and I'm gonna look up look up that information too. I just wanna <laughs> wanna check it out. Um, yeah, I'll send it to you. I still owe
1: you a bibliography, so I'll add it
0: to the bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we got a long-lasting friendship, so trust me. We, we we got. I'm gonna be you know trading a lot of different thoughts and things like that and documents between the two of us. So. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, it'll Out come. Forward.
0: So, all right, I wanna I wanna bring it on home um, with Pebble Hill Plantation, and then kind of give an overview of your thoughts and how you felt after the dissertation and and all of this research and what we're doing forward, um, or what you're doing going forward. So. Getting into the book that you rep- recommended to me, it was a uh, Voices of America book, um, African-American Life on the Southern Hunting Plantation. It was written by uh, Jack or Titus Brown and Jack Hadley um, for folks that need to know what we're talking about. Now, what out of that entire book, like what histories did you find there that were that were like unique to support your work? Um just something that, that really stood out to you and brought it all home?
1: Well, you know, when you asked me that, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can pinpoint just one thing. <laughs> you can go I mean, more, what, just, you know. I loved hearing about, I mean, I, I love the practice of oral history, and I loved reading Mr. Hadley and Dr. Brown's work. Um, and they, by the way, this is just, these are excerpted from much longer oral histories that make up a, you know, multi, I mean, if if you could see the actual oral histories that they took, there's so much information in there that was edited for this excellent uh, book that you referenced. Mm -hmm. But I think I love reading stories about um, the ways that men and women uh, thought about their work on these plantations. Um, You know, plantations practice a form of what I would say is kind of industrial capitalism in a way, right? So these northerners, they were all from these, you know, big industries like oil, standard oil and railroads, and steel, and they organized their plantations. They organized their workers on their plantations in a way that was reflective of a, a larger movement among big industries, which was to um, practice a kind of paternalism, right? So they would give their workers homes. They built churches and schools for workers, right? Um, and so I was really interested to hear the African-American perspective of that, what it was like to work on these plantations for um, these folks, what it, what their jobs meant to them, what their day-to-day work was like, and all of that comes out, oral histories taken by Mr. Hadley um, and Dr. Brown. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I, you know, they talked about, for example, participating in baseball leagues among the plantations. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And another again, another example of this kind of um, welfare uh, capitalism or industrial capital, uh, 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 industrial welfare, mm-hmm. um, and so I think uh, as a chorus taken together, they tell us a lot. And then there were just individual stories, that you know, that, that also describe what it meant to be in the rural South. You know, right. to be most Southerners were still rural at the time, and I think to hear kind of the the the, um, the ways that that, that those. Lives were experienced. I think is just fascinating to me, right. um, and I think anyone interested to know more should not only read that book, but should visit the Jack Hadley Black History Museum mm-hmm. in Thomasville, mm-hmm. which is doing you know important work to preserve these histories. Yes. Um, Mr. Hadley's father worked on Pebble Hill, and so he has an intimate connection to that past. And so I think knowing him and knowing the work he does and supporting it is critical
0: right well i i think so um i don't you know dr brock i don't really understand how i i ended up coming into all of this information about just black history of the south but really it's is and still relating to plantations and stuff um I probably said thank you a hundred million times, but I'm just, as we talk about it, I'm just like, dang, like this is the part of the responsibility that I'm always talking about. Like, all right, I've got this bird dog podcast and I want it to be more than just talking about dogs, you know, like that, yeah. it, it, it that only goes so far. And I think the dogs have shown to be just the the, the glue to it all. You know, For there sure. there are these weird kind of connections, but once you kind of just separate that glue per se, just kind of stick to the dogs, but not really stick to the dogs, like kind of sift through it. There are these very, very, very interesting histories and in the narratives um that have gone on that I'm just trying to di- dissect. Um so what I'm saying is, thank you for helping me to, oh,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> like, really take this responsibility by charge. Um, you know, considering the times, all of that stuff. I just don't believe in coincidence. I just really don't. Um, you know, so. <laughs> that's yeah. Just no
1: i th- i am I am so more than honored to help and to pass on what sources I can. And I think you've got a journey ahead of you to find even more. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited about to, to know, to learn from you and to to read what you'll write, to hear what you'll say about these histories. So mm-hmm. uh, thanks to you too.
0: So let's, let's wrap up the dissertation and, and where you go from here. What was okay. after the last word was typed, the last period was, was, was entered What was the feeling? What was the overarching feeling?
1: (laughs) You know, it's a little anticlimactic. I mean, because you've been working on it for so long, and then it's gone through multiple revisions with your committee, and then you have to format it for, you know, ProQuest, which is this – you know, the system that you submit your dissertation to, and it, 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 you know, it was a little, it was a little anticlimactic, and I had to step away, uh, because you become so wrapped up in the work, and it's very personal, and Mm so, you know, it's been a while since I finished it. I mean, I finished it in 2012, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm only now, you know, trying to, to write a book around some of these same themes, so it's been marinating for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. While I've been working on other kinds of projects, and so I'm excited to, you know, now now that I'm at the University of Alabama, um, and to be working on going back to it essentially. And so, part, you know, your our conversations are really helping me too to kind of, to, you know, start thinking about these themes in depth again, and to think about where I want to go uh, with my own research.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad that they're helping. <laughs> like, I'm just the guy out here like running around with dogs and talking about it. But um, I'm I'm definitely excited about that. Um, and I, you know, when that book comes out, let me know. I I want to um to to get that copy if 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 at all possible. Um, I want I definitely yeah, want to I mean, read it. <laughs> th-
1: thank you. I mean, the book is going to be a little bit different in that it. What I became really interested in, actually, was something that Charlie Young clued me into, was that, you know, the ways that these, some of the practices that that were adopted um, in the late 19th century by sportsmen, you know, sportsmen was an emerging identity in the 19th century that was, you know, the It was really popularized by periodicals like Field and Stream. Mm -hmm. Um, And sportsmen come to dominate the kind of conversation around conservation in the South, Um, conservation around prey, conservation uh, of fish, obviously, and and other types of game. And so I'm interested in, you know, Charlie Young talks about the ways that, you know, once northerners began to come down to Thomasville, hunting practice changed. Mm -hmm. So he talks about, for example, the introduction of smokeless shells and how the average southerner could not afford a smokeless shell or how, you know, people didn't really care about quail so much, but then quail become, you know, this expensive bird that you you really couldn't afford when you went to the market, let's say, mm-hmm. um, or they become overhunted. And so I'm, my book is looking more at the creation of the hunting law in the form of fish and game commissions in the South in the early 20th century and the ways that that affected just Average Southerners, white and black, you know, mostly men, some women too. The way that those new game laws affected their access to uh, to land, to mm-hmm. to guns, sometimes to prey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I've, it's taken a different turn. But it, I, I'm excited to continue with the theme of hunting uh, because it lets me talk to hunters like you um, and see how things have changed over time. You yeah. know, and so I'm, I'm excited to be working on this project. Wow.
0: That's good. I, I want to hear that. And I, I specifically want to hear about the piece about, you know, women back then. Um, I think that's a its own universe of of information in and of itself too. Um I'd right. like to to hear that perspective. So we're, you know, um I and the crazy thing is eh, quail like hunting quail, I understand how they would have been abundant way back then. Um, Mm -hmm. but we talk about, you know, all of this stuff and, and we talk about conservation and, and how, you know, agricultural practices are changing, right? They're, they're, they're not really doing a lot of, um, or a lot of fertilizer and stuff like that is like killing birds and things like that. But the honest to God insight on some of that is people are greedy, and people yeah. consume. <laughs> and we have right. like had we've done a number on those birds, just shooting 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 shooting, you know. Um I've made it a practice to a couple of different things. Number one, I only hunt with a double barrel shotgun, which I only get two shots. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then my next thing is going a little deeper into the practice of bird dogs and hunting. Um I actually only take a blank starter pistol out there now most days. Sure. So I'll give my, myself a limit of six birds for the entire season. Now, when I decide to do that is, is when it happens, but I'll go out and I'll, you know, my dog will point birds. I'll get my lab to flush them and things like that. Um, and I just won't mm-hmm. kill them. I just, it, it. you get to that point, they get up in the air and they fly off and, and they're there to, you know, be pursued the following day, and mm-hmm. I guess it's in in some weird kind of way. It's just my act against selfishness, right? Like, yeah, it it just because I'm just like, all right. I mean, and the other thing is, we there are breeders out there that breed the same kind of birds. So all we're going to do is just go and and get a a case of maybe 25 quail on the, on like training days where I can't go hunt them because they're nesting. I'll just eat Mm -hmm. those birds, (laughs) but the wild ones, I'm like, ah, let's leave those guys alone. So,
1: yeah. I mean, I know in Alabama, you know, here um, they're, you know, native, I know quail are being propagated, but I, I know that there's been an issue with, trying to create habitats for them Mm -hmm. to thrive. Right. Um, And there are so many people, you know, people who are experts working, working on that very issue. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to bring it back to history again in the red hills, you know, a hundred years ago, I mean, people in the red hills, thanks to the, some of these Northern hunters, brought in Herbert Stoddard, who was, a, uh, you know, a, a, who had trained with Aldo Leopold, who was a conservationist, a naturalist. Um, and they begin experiments on quail propagation and quail habitat, which continue, you know, at Tall Timbers and elsewhere in the region. And so I think there is a historical connection to this very issue that I think is still pertinent. Right. Um, but it's interesting to hear your own practice, and I wonder what other folks do
0: or how they would respond you know I, who are out there I, I want to know too I've had some honestly kind of crazy responses to it most people are cool with it like oh okay I get it and, and, and it's for field trialing and things like that but I had one guy that was like oh you're um you are giving ammo to the anti-hunters and I'm like no dude like that's not what this is about Like <laughs> this is really not about that. Um, what I'm trying to yeah. do is, is not only keep the birds there, but I don't need to kill anything to, to, to enjoy my dog pointing a bird. I, I yep. just don't. <laughs> so, um, yeah. my, my, now my last thing though, now this is the part that, that rang a bell. Um, you are a hound owner,
1: i I have to bring it up because
0: i love me some hound dog. so
1: (laughs) tell me about your dog me too me too yeah he's a rescue he's a red bone hound and we don't really know his story but we think he was uh somebody tried to hunt him and that he was probably gunshot because Mm -hmm. he he, did the, he he just seems that like he is you know he gets scared of loud noises and he wandered the streets of Shelby County Al, you know Alabama for a month or so until he was picked up and I found him he was emaciated what I love about him is because I study the history of hunting he is an amazing I don't I don't use him to hunt mm-hmm. but he I guess I I do use him as bait for stories that mm-hmm. people tell me about their hunting with hound dogs so he is. Every time I take him out and I'm telling you almost every time I take him out and you know it to the dog park or you know take the pet smart or just walk him in the neighborhood people will stop. <laughs> And they, because people, you know, hunters, many hunters love hound dogs. Not just hunters, but hunters love hound dogs. Many do. And they will stop and they will tell me stories about, you know, their red bones or their blue ticks or their bird dogs, you know, and their stories growing up having red bones or breeding red bones and hunting with red bones. And so it's been this amazing way to learn more, too, about the history of hunting, Mm -hmm. um, to talk with people. And I swear, I've never seen, you know, I took him to PetSmart once and all of a sudden I see this tall, tall. I mean, I'm talking about six foot five, 230 plus pound man walking up to him and he just fell on his knees (laughs) and he took my dog's head in his hands and he just, love them, you know, and start yeah. telling me stories. And so I just love the effect that dogs have on not only every you know everyone else, but me too. I mean, I just, I'm such a hound lover. So he does play into my research and I'm like you, I'm kind of interested in the history of dog breeding mm-hmm. and, you know, what dogs were used for what types of hunting and how that changed in the South over time. But the Redbone is a, a Southern invention. Mm-hmm. So he's, pr- he's particularly interesting to me yep. uh, too, as a breed.
0: That's, that's, that's cool. I, uh, you know, you, now I, I'm, I'm don't say I'm trying to persuade you for anything, but you know, if you threw a pointer <laughs> in there too. I, you know, I, <laughs> I could help you find a good one. <laughs> I'll
1: keep that in mind. I love pointers. Um, and I love retrievers. Yeah. You know, I grew up with retrievers. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so I will,
0: right, well, I got both of them and I'm telling you it is a handful. So well, Dr. Brock, I, I can't thank you enough. And like I said, I, I could go on for hours talking to you. Um, but I, I think we got a good kind of overview of some of your work. And, and you know, obviously, we'll be, you know, chatting back and forth, you know, here and there about just researching history. But um, if anybody wanted to to contact you or reach out to you, is there any any way for them to do so?
1: Yes, I would, you know, I encourage that. If anyone has questions about other resources they might be able to access or any way I can help, answer questions about the history of hunting in the South, anything like that, I hope that people will contact me. Um, My email is, if if you Google search me on the University of Alabama history department, you'll find my email. It's just jbrock2 at ua.edu. That's probably the best way. Mm. I have social media accounts that I'm not super active on, so I think email is probably the best way. But I would love to hear from folks if I can help in any way.
0: Okay. All right. All right. Well, Dr. Brock, I appreciate it. And I'm going to wrap this up. This is another episode Of the Gun Dog Notebook podcast. And um, Dr. Brock, I want to say thank you. And and I will get this episode posted ASAP. Okay. Thank you, Darrell. Again,
1: it was an honor to
0: be here. So thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: All right, guys, that is another episode of the Gundog Notebook podcast. Admittedly, that is probably one of my favorite episodes. I'm a history nerd, though. Like, I, I like stuff like that. Um, so if you enjoyed the episode, guys, go and make sure um, this time, give me a rating and review. Let me see what you're thinking about this. This this new stuff going on, guys. And outside of that, guys, I want to thank my sponsors uh, on X Hunt. You sporting dog. My affiliates Garmin and lion country supply. Um I also want to remind you guys just at the end of the episode, go check out Minority Outdoor Alliance. Um it is a growing nonprofit that I, along with my wife and and, and with the support of many others, um, we are getting off the ground to make the outdoors for everyone. All right. Um Ask yourself: Is public land truly public? And if you can see yourself, and if you've experienced a truly colorful, diverse, and very, very inclusive outdoors, you are doing your job in making public lands truly public. So, outside of that, guys, I just kind of wanted to put that on your radar. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and 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 look forward to more. I've, I've now that everything is kind of slowing down, I, I want to get back to my research and 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 some of the projects that I have. Um, going on and 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 some more of the the stuff that dr brock has given me to help me out with my own um, you know literature and 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 book writing endeavors and things like that so anyway guys i will catch y'all next week for another episode of the gun dog notebook podcast stay tuned